Welcome to the American Institute of Stress's official podcast, Finding Contentment. The goal of this podcast is to highlight new information about stress and stress management techniques. While we understand that stress is a very personalized issue and different for everyone, we hope to help you find your own way to contentment. Greetings, everyone. Welcome back. I'm glad you can join us again today or once again today if you've joined us in the past. Uh, This is Finding Contentment, the official podcast for the American Institute of Stress. I'm Will Heckman, I'm the executive director and your host for this podcast. And if you are joining us for the very first time, this podcast uh, focuses on stress and stress-related issues. I need you all to follow us. Go to stress.org. You can always send in reviews and comments. We love hitting Uh, hearing from you guys. Um, The reason I'm saying hitting is because I have to do whatever YouTube does because we now can be seen on YouTube and ask you to hit the subscribe button, hit the like button. It's over there in the corner somewhere. You can find it. Uh, And also make sure you leave a comment. And guys, I need to ask you a favor. You know, the American Institute of Stress is a nonprofit And we need your help, you know, by making a donation to the American Institute of Stress. You can do that annually. You help support and strengthen and sustain our legacy of science-based stress management education. All right, let's get on to our show today, because today's guest wrote a book which describes what may one day be remembered as the most important theoretical advance in medical history. Uh, The worldwide warfare of the 20th century produced an era of research, rigor, vigor, integrity, and progress that inspired prominent physician researcher named Hans Salle. He he, uh, had a theory that uh, a stress mechanism regulates physiology and explains disease. His concept was and remains the most promising prospect for an effective theory of machine and its inspired intense international search for stress mechanism. Uh, And that mostly was abandoned and forgotten about after years of fruitless failure. However, there's powerful new theories uh, typically arrive usually after long evidence becomes available and they confirmed them. So another 30 years of accumulating evidence has gone by from unrelated research and and how now enabled Dr. Lewis Coleman, our guest today, to identify the stress mechanism. It explains physiology and disease and, and, and fulfills all the predictions and expectations of previous stress researchers. It really has revolutionized medicine and provides a powerful new treatment that will enable us to have better health, longevity, and freedom from from disease and suffering and even premature death. Uh, To tell you a little bit about Dr. Coleman, he is a board-certified American anesthesiologist who obtained his MD from New York Medical College and completed his surgical internship and anesthesiology residency at UCLA, followed by... 40 years in private practice. So Dr. Coleman's basic science instruction started at NYMC, and it also coincided with a two-year sojourn with Dr. Johannes Rodin, which we'll mention later, and um, who was retained at the school to reform its curriculum. And Dr. Rodin's 
was a former researcher and expert on stress theory of Hans Salye. His lecture devastated the, the dogma of the classic physiology and convinced Dr. Coleman that stress theory represent the future of medicine. Many years later, these lectures uh, enabled Dr. Coleman to identify Salier's long sought after stress mechanism. Anyway, he is a AIS fellow, and he's also the chair of our science and education board for the American Institute of Stress. And his new book, 50 Years Lost in Medical Advance, can be found like everything else in the world, on Amazon. <laughs> but you can also find it if you go to Dr. Coleman's website. It's called stressmechanism.com. Make sure you do that. So let join me in welcoming Dr. Lewis Coleman. Lewis, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. We appreciate it. Boy, I, you know, not only going through, I could not be honest with you, read your whole book in one sitting, it's a big chunk. It's a lot to take in. First thing I wanted to ask you about was how you went from being an anesthesiologist to being involved in the science of stress. Well, that's a good question. The The first thing I would say is that the profession of anesthesiology is stress control. It is synonymous with stress control. When you have surgery, most patients don't realize this, but it's not just about uh, the anesthesia. It's not just about going to sleep and, and not being aware of the pain. That's, that's the common perception. Um, before there was anesthesia, before the discovery of anesthesia, if you had uh, any kind of serious uh, surgical procedure, and we call it an invasive body cavity procedure, say in the belly or the chest or the head, um, but even in the arms and legs, um, you were inviting what was called a stress reaction. And uh, you, even if you survived the surgery um, and woke up and everything looked good the first day, then over the next 48 hours approximately, your body would exhibit a stress reaction and you'd become febrile and hypertensive. That is your blood pressure would go up and your pulse rate would go up and you'd have exaggerated pain. And then that would progress to delirium. And uh, a lot of people would just simply die. Hmm. So as a result, uh, major surgeries, any kind of surgery was avoided if possible. So, Anesthesia was uh, sort of a miracle, or regarded as a miracle, because it gave you a chance to live. You know, if you were shot in the uh, the chest or the leg or something like that, now they could operate on you and you'd have a chance of surviving. But the, what we what we call the surgical stress reaction persists in spite of conventional anesthesia. Um, it's muted. It's not as bad as it used to be by a long shot. Uh, anesthesia helps a great deal. But it still exists in the form of nausea, vomiting, fever, uh, pain, and, you know, delirium a lot of times, uh, just not as bad as it used to be. So that's the first thing. As an anesthesiologist, my job is to optimize surgical outcome using various uh, drugs and treatments. You know, that's, that's what I do. It's not just to protect against pain. Okay, so like to make that clear right off the bat. So that so I'm I'm an expert in stress control 
just by virtue of my profession, or I should be, although um, what I've learned and mastered, you know, in practice and as a result of you're reviewing the research literature uh, based on stress theory has dramatically improved my own practice of anesthesia over the years. Uh, we can discuss that. I don't know. Uh, depends on how far you want to delve into it. <laughs> well, I, w- I was really interested, you know, as, as an anesthesiologist, we have all of us have a view of what that is, but your explanation of really that it is stress management during a very, invasive procedure makes a lot of sense surgery, yeah, surgery you know, is extremely yeah. yeah surgery itself is extremely stressful it's one of the most stressful things you can do right so there you I've go been, I, I mean i have not had let's any major surgery i had my knee redone like most athletes are um and, and that was stressful enough but mm-hmm. you're right. It was the anesthesiologist more than my doctor telling me everything's going to be fine. Um, that really calmed me down. Mm-hmm. Right, that he did it with, uh, with expertise. And, and you mentioned that, you know, that it helped you understand stress theory. And because you're what exactly is stress theory? Can you explain it to us in, in terms that, you know, guys like I can understand? Um, um, I'm going to give it a try. Um, you know, we are, you know, we're fertilized, uh, in, you know, the, the mother's egg gets fertilized and it begins to, to divide and, uh, the cells specialize and into, um, specialized types of cells and they form specialized structures and organs uh, during what we call embryological development during pregnancy. Uh, and that occurs faster than anything, any other time of life. Um, and then once you're born, um, you're, you, you have to have a, you have to maintain what you call a milieu, internal milieu, uh, your internal environment has to be such as to sustain those cells. They, they need food, they need uh, oxygen, uh, you, you know, they need to have their wastes carried away and so forth. And, you know, bio, biologists call that the internal milieu. Well, that involves food acquisition, digestion, circulation to distribute the food around and, and oxygen you has to be acquired from the atmosphere and, and delivered to the cells deep in the body. And all this is goes on, but it doesn't end there. There's also, you have to constantly maintain the body. It's composed of all these billions of cells and specialized structures. It's subject to injury everywhere you go. And that's called stress. All the various forms of assault on your body from the environment, everything from too much uh, radiation to trauma to just plain fear, actually, uh, and anxiety is stressful and it damages the body. Um, this is never, all of this has been a, a huge mystery, you know, until now. Well, um, what happened? I'm going to cut this way short because there's a dramatic story of um, research and science, scientific endeavor. Um, you know, really the great wars of the previous century, World War One, World War Two, and so forth. Um, war is the mainspring of uh, medical progress because during wartime, 
uh, governments to finance research because disease traditionally kills more people than soldiers included than bullets and bombs, right? So there was tremendous uh, ferment and research and, um, you know, under those circumstances, it has to be, there has to be a high level of integrity, you know, the honesty and so forth. So that produced great strides. Well, it, it really culminated from my way of thinking uh, after the war was over in about 1953 with the discovery of DNA. Now, that caused a tremendous ferment in science and cell biology and medicine. Nothing like that had ever been achieved before. Um, and it focused attention on a relatively obscure, very sophisticated theory that was uh, had been promoted by a, a fellow named Hans Selyer, as you, you mentioned him. He was the founder of the American Institute of Stress, along with some other very prominent scientists of the previous century. Mm-hmm. Um, well, um, Selyer proposed that there's a single mechanism that explains um, embryological development and tissue repair and maintains the internal milieu, governs organ function, you know, heart function, you know, circulation, digestion, all these things is actually controlled by a single mechanism. Now, most people don't think in those terms, including doctors. Um, We're trained as doctors in modern um, medical school uh, theory to think that each, you know, that there's zillions of systems inside the body or numerous systems and that each disease is uh, independent from all the other diseases and you need to diagnose the specific disease and treat it with specialized treatments. And so that's what we do. We have all these fancy diagnostic machines. As everybody knows has had any encounter with a hospital, knows all the rigmarole you have to go through, you know, <laughs> uh, and surgery and everything. But um, all these um, things like uh, maintaining the internal milieu and embryological development, tissue repair, have, it's just like this fantastic mystery. It's the mystery of life. We've never understood what is actually going on. We do not understand the nature of disease. We know that there are compelling relationships between and among diseases conventional theory cannot explain. Say, for example, morbid obesity is associated with cancer, hypertension, diabetes, and and heart disease, and so forth. And these things are all interrelated, but they seem to be distinctly different. Mm. So, you know, I could go on and on about the the shortcomings of modern medical theory, um, but we don't have time for it. But Selyer proposed that there's a single mechanism that could explain all this. Well, um, the the DNA mechanism by itself really didn't explain much. You know, everybody got really excited because it explained how the genetic blueprint is stored and replicated, which was fantastic. But it really didn't explain tissue repair, digestion, circulation, you know, all these other embryological development. None of that didn't explain any of that. So what Selyer was proposing was that the stress mechanism works closely with DNA during embryological development to convert the genetic information into embryological development to orchestrate all the cell development and um, into 
the formation of complex multicellular structures and that it remains active for the duration and remainder of life to continuously re- you know, maintain those structures, to repair them when they get damaged. And even um, you have to have turnover in the collagen that holds us all t- together. You know, it's a, mm-hmm. you know, a specialized protein that holds all the cells together. That has to be replenished constantly. And so the, something has to govern that process. Like I say, this was all a complete mystery, but this was a theory or a hypothesis really properly spoken is you call it a hypothesis because it hadn't been tested and proved until you have identified a mechanism that explains how this might work. Well, that was a very powerful idea, a very exciting idea. And the discovery of DNA was a monumental achievement. Like, don't want to go into, I'd love to talk about it, but we don't have time, but you know, Watson and Crick, they, what they did was, I don't think I could have done it, but it got everybody really, really excited because people looked at this and they said, geez, if they could do that, we can, they thought the next great advance would be the discovery of this stress mechanism. So I hope I'm making myself clear in all this. Um, This inspired, uh, an international an intense international search for the stress mechanism that lasted for roughly 30 years. It was financed by governments all around the world and uh, it consumed the careers of hundreds of trained researchers and the lives of thousands of tortured test animals and millions and millions of dollars that today would be billions. And it got nowhere. Now, the the era of stress research produced a tremendous progress in medicine and science and biology and so forth. Uh, we discovered apoptosis, uh, the immune mechanism, and um, the coagulation cascade. Those are just some brief examples, but there there were lots of other uh, advances. And um, so it wasn't a waste, but they didn't get anywhere in terms of discovering. Uh, any kind of testable mechanism. Now, I have to have a testable mechanism. Can't be overemphasized. It has to be tested and confirmed before you have anything that you can use. Okay, so really, a theory is useless until it has a a uh, testable mechanism that explains how it works. Um, the researchers at the time got closer than they'd ever would imagine. Um, they they actually didn't really believe that there could possibly be a single mechanism. I mean, that was a nice theory (laughs) and uh, sounds great. But what actually happened in reality was half of them pursued what they called tissue repair theory. And the other half pursued what they called capillary gate theory. The capillary gate theory uh, is the idea that blood flow regulation occurs in the tiniest blood vessels called capillaries because their surface area is actually like several football fields and, you know, in, in surface area, whereas it was way greater than the um, total surface area of all your bigger vessels like arteries and veins. Tissue repair theory is the idea that tissue repair occurs, is known to occur way back then, you know, in, in an orderly sequence, you know, starting with coagulation, then inflammation, and then 
chemotaxis cells moving, you know, uh, intact cells moving into the damaged tissues and and so on. So it's it's an orderly process. So they divided into two camps and they worked and worked and they made great progress on the details of tissue repair and um but they couldn't find a capillary gate mechanism, they couldn't find a tissue repair mechanism. Um actually the coagulation cascade was the first extremely crude description of the stress mechanism because the enzymes that, that um, are transported around in blood are tissue repair enzymes and they're activated by tissue damage that exposes those enzymes to what you call tissue factor that's isolated from the enzymes by a, a layer of cells, one cell thick, very highly specialized cells called the vascular endothelium. And now this goes into much greater detail, but I'm just trying to give people just an idea, crude idea of uh, what the stress mechanism is. The vascular endothelium is highly innervated. So the nervous system activates its cells and the cells communicate with one another by electrical signals. It's just, as I've learned more and more about this from the research literature, I've just, and by the way, it took me six years of dedicated effort to, to finally realize that I had discovered this and I would never have managed to do it. It's really a miracle of circumstances because I happened to attend this one medical school that had hired, that had retained this famous researcher, Johannes Rodin. Right. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. He was only there for two years and that happened to, coincide with my two years of basic sciences training. So I got the benefit of his basic sciences education and his lectures on stress theory. And I was galvanized. I was, it was like a religious conversion for me. I don't know about the other guys in the class. Um, You weren't being tested on this, but I was hit, hit by a bolt of lightning. And I have believed ever since that stress theory represented the future of medicine. It was really compelling. So um, I thought, well, I'll never have anything to do with this. And I didn't, but I, I, I was always paying attention to the, you know, the advances in biology um, that were occurring. And um, so about, I don't know, 20 years maybe a little more uh, after I was in private practice, what I was focusing on really was finding a better way to care for my patients, you know, to improve my anesthetic technique, to improve surgical outcome based on a crude understanding that, uh, that what I'm doing is controlling the stress reaction. And I, I learned over time that, um, I could supplement, well, it's a long story, but you, you know, I learned to use hypercarbia, which I was trained to do the opposite. I was trained to hyperventilate patients Mm -hmm. that carbon dioxide is bad. It's not, it's necessary for life. I was going to ask you about that because you wrote in an article um, in AIS magazine contentment, you said that uh, carbon dioxide is toxic waste and that there was a that was scientific insanity and arguably 
um, more outrageous than the notion that the world was flat, which I thought was really funny. Well, (laughs) you know, this is just to try to help people understand life is a long, dramatic story. I mean, the early modern history of modern anesthesia took place at the turn of the previous century, like in the early 1900s. And there was intense medical research and preparation even before World War One in preparation for the war. And uh, so uh, there were George Washington Crowell and Yandel Henderson and and others uh, made tremendous, important contributions and then after World War One, there was a shortage of doctors. So Cryol established the first school of nurse and anesthesia. And the nurse nursing school, he, he put his favorite nurse in charge of the school. Her name was Agatha Hudgens. And uh, they wound up incorporating the science of Cryol himself and uh, Vandal Henderson and the um, the early um, prototypes of anesthesia machines that have been designed by um, I'm blanking his name, you know. But anyway, uh, the early anesthesia machines were closed circuit machines because the gases were so expensive back then that they try not to waste them. Mm. Anyway, um, Henderson proved the therapeutic benefits of carbon dioxide, but they didn't have any way of, of measuring the concentration of carbon dioxide. Now, carbon dioxide is like, uh, has a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde uh, personality to it and, and when you use it. Uh, up to a certain point, it's all good. It improves every aspect of oxygen transport and delivery and tissue oxygenation. And it's, uh, you know, so they learned to supplement their anesthetic gas mixtures with carbon dioxide and the patients did way better that, you know, prevented explosions that uh, prevented uh, pneumonia, atelectasis, uh, post-op and respiratory uh, arrest post-op. And I mean, did all kinds of good things. Mm-hmm. It also in, 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 um, offset the respiratory depression of narcotics. So you could give, they gave these big doses of morphine which also improves surgical outcome independent of carbon dioxide. But when you combine them, then you get a synergism and then you really improve surgical outcome. Now they knew all this way back, but the guys who founded professional anesthesia were jealous of the nurses who dominated anesthesia practice in the interval between world war one and world war two. And they schemed literally I've written that that's just, this is in my book, but the way they did this was they, they the the nurses did have a problem. Well, they, they had more than one problem. They, you know, with their technique, it was difficult to to intubate the patients. That is, put a breathing tube in the mouth, right. then into the windpipe, and so there was constantly a danger of vomiting and aspiration. That happened a lot, and you couldn't support breathing when you needed to. You had to be very careful not to overdose with the narcotics, for example. Um, and so, but the biggest problem, um, most dramatic problem, shall we say, was they'd be, they would get carried away with CO2 supplementation. Well, when you get the concentration of carbon dioxide way too high, like up around 30%, understand that carbon dioxide is 0.04% or 0.03% in the surrounding atmosphere. 
So 30% is way concentrated, right? So this didn't happen very often, but they could inject carbon dioxide from a tank directly into the gas mixture that the patient's breathing. So once in a long while, they would get too much in there and it would cause asphyxiation. That is, it would disrupt the oxygen transport and delivery. See, up to that point, it would help it, but then it would interfere with the binding of hemoglobin to oxygen in the lung. And, and then you get brain hypoxia. This the would patient cause, would die. <laughs> well, it could, could kill you. You'd, it would start with convulsions <laughs> and it scared the wits out of everybody. But I think the worst of it was it was mostly kids, little children who suffered this right. because Makes they're, sense. they're more vulnerable. Their me- metabolic rate is higher. They need the oxygen more for their brain than this old guys. And so they would suffer these convulsions. Nobody wants a convulsion on a child. You know, and so, so this uh, guy who founded the, the profession, his name was Ralph Waters, and he was basically a, he was a doctor, but he was, it's a long story, but he was basically a salesman. And um, he characterized carbon dioxide as toxic waste, right. like urine that must be rid from the body. Well, doctors are really pretty meek and mild creatures and the last thing in the world they want is to be having people think that they're doing something dangerous right at this time at this juncture carbon dioxide had been accepted by physicians to the point that they were using a a mixture of carbon dioxide and oxygen in tanks they called it carbogen and they were using it to treat heart attacks and strokes and smoke inhalation and drowning and newborn babies with breathing problems and it was saving lives all over the place okay it was well accepted but waters was I mean, he he had been appointed the first um chief of anesthesia at a university and it gave him tremendous prestige and he's running around characterizing carbon dioxide as dangerous as toxic waste like urine mm. well this story goes deeper than that but you know Suffice it to say that this frightened carbon dioxide and carbogen completely out of use. And to this day, there, there's more to it than that and what happened. It's a complicated story in the ensuing years. But by the time I trained in anesthesia at UCLA, we were brainwashed with the idea that carbon dioxide is bad. It has it's toxic uh, consequences and it has anesthetic properties, neither of which is true. It mimics anesthesia, it mimics toxicity, but it is about as toxic as water. I mean, you can drown somebody in water, you can drown them in carbon dioxide. Anyway, you it know, sounds like to me that you're saying that it enhances the anesthesia, that it, it improves the outcome, it improves the, uh, the, the patient's, you know, being able to survivability after the operation. So, you know, yeah, yeah. It, to me, that's that's it, the proof of the pudding. Yeah. Yes. Well, I I was practicing now, you know, in this environment. I mean, to me, it was. I could go more into my own story about my undergraduate experience with carbon dioxide, and my medical school taught the truth that carbon dioxide is necessary for oxygen transport and delivery. As a matter of fact, it's necessary for every step of it, from stimulating breathing to enabling the binding of oxygen to the to the red cells in the lung to opening up the capillary gate re- reducing flow resistance so that the heart can speed the oxygen to to your tissues and then 
releasing the oxygen from the red cells into the tissues. So I knew that. And, and then I go into this anesthesia training and they telling you, no, no, it's, and, and there was nobody to talk to because right. they all believe this. <laughs> it was like a Kafka-esque experience for me. <laughs> you know well, what I'm saying? Kafka? Oh, yes. Uh, let me, let me ask you, do you, because you brought up a question I didn't even think of, you know, when you are sort of going against the flow, fighting the, the AMA's uh, conventional thought process. Do you I kept find, my mouth shut. Yeah, I, I understand. <laughs> oh, I, and, and I really do. I understand. Um, but do you find that to be, because what I've seen, I would say yes, but you have a lot more experience than I do. Do you find that to be true about the treatment of stress and stress theory too? That the AMA absolutely is like got a just a, a wall up they won't get past. Well, you know we are now post-war. Commercial interests have taken charge of medicine, and they have invaded powerful corporations. There's the more the government subsidizes medicine, the more profit they make. And they thrive on sickness. They profit on sickness. They don't profit on getting people well. And they have infested the journals and the medical boards and the FDA. And I mean, you know, they're very, very powerful. And they have defended and promoted this mythology about carbon dioxide, you know, falsehood. And I could go on. There's many you know, uh, you know, the cancer treatment approach is all wrong. And if it, that, that is to say, if, if I'm right, then the entire approach to cancer treatment is bass backwards. You know, mm-hmm. you're treating cancer with the very types of things that cause cancer, you know, toxic, you know, poisons and excessive radiation and surgical trauma it actually stimulates the stress mechanism and stress theory, as I'm expressing it in my book holds that cancer is a self-sustaining uh, abnormal version of tissue repair. In other words, if you subject uh, and mammals are especially vulnerable to it, uh, say it's less common in reptiles and amphibians and so forth because their, their stress mechanisms are, I don't know. They're actually more primitive or they, we evolved from them, right. you know? So we've made sacrifices and our, our stress mechanisms have given up some things to gain others. Right. So one of the things we've given up is um, the ability of red cells to participate in tissue repair. So we're more vulnerable to cancer to make a long story short. And, once uh, we call it malignancy, that's the proper term. Uh-huh. Um, the malignant state is a state of self-sustaining tissue repair that continuously invades adjacent tissues and disrupts them and, and stimulates nervous, abnormal nervous activity and releases tissue factor and sustains itself and keeps going and going and going and it'll kill you. Hmm. And uh, so it's very dangerous now. But it also, stress theory confers a very simple, efficient way to treat it. In fact, here's the beauty, the real beauty that that is really, really, really exciting about stress theory 
If there's a single mechanism, and I've tested it to the extent that I've been able to, I've, I've tried to go back into the universities to get a chance to do um, controlled research and clinical research, but they slammed the door in my face and I thought, oh, you're too old and da, 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 da. You mean you're too Long experienced? <laughs> Is that what they're saying? You have too much experience? That doesn't make any sense. Maybe, but uh, suffice it to say, things have changed. Mm. Um, we were encouraged to get involved in research when I was in my training, but then now, you know, not so much. <laughs> um, at any rate, uh, what the really exciting aspect of stress theory is, is that all disease is caused by hyperactivity of the stress mechanism induced by environmental stress. Now, yeah, we see all these different kinds of diseases, right? So that conveys the impression that each disease is distinct and different from the other diseases. But actually, it's all about how the stress mechanism reacts to the environmental stresses and what combination of stresses are activating it. Now, this, the mechanism has three basic pathways that activate it. And this is all in the book. I we don't have time to discuss it here, no. but uh, what this is saying is that if we can use treatments that re reduce stress mechanism hyperactivity, so when the stress mechanism gets hyperactivated, what does it do? It's a machine. Think of it like a car, okay? It has an engine, it takes gasoline, and has to have water in the radiator. You have to maintain it. You have to keep the water in the radiator to keep it going. It put gas in the tank. The electrical system has to be intact, and it goes down the road, and it does a great job. But if you don't put water in the radiator, and you don't put oil in the engine, or if you drive it at 150 miles an hour, it's liable to fly off the road, and you know it's not going to do what it was intended to do. It's been hyperactivated, right, or run without proper maintenance. So this is a mechanism in your body. When it becomes hyperactivated, what does it do? Well, it begins to consume, overconsume, and waste its substrates, you know, the substances that it needs to operate, and produce excessive and defective versions of its products. Now, it's simpler than you would ever believe, you know, and like I said, the old stress researchers were so close to getting this straight. They just lacked a few details. And what's happened is that during the, the 30, 40 years since they gave up searching for the mechanism, unrelated research has produced enough of those details yeah. that I was able to, to, to identify this, right? There's so many, many um, questions, you know, I, it's still crude, right? But we've, I, I think we've got it to the point now where it's testable and uh, you know, that's, we've got to get it tested and to do that. We've got to get it publicized and people have to look at this and, and then actually do it. And we have to get the, right. you know, the, the selfish interests put pushed aside so that. Which we is can, not easy. It, no. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so if we can, here's the thing, if we can, if you're sick, if you've got pneumonia, if you've got these uh, critical illnesses like adult respiratory distress syndrome, and nobody knows what's causing this, mm -hmm. it's very, very confusing. But stress theory says it's just the hyperactivity of this one mechanism. So if we can reduce that activity down back to normal, that will restore effective organ function and 
then it makes antibiotics work properly. Um, you know, like for example, MRSA, right. you know, methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus is what that stands for. And right. it chews up your skin. They call it uh, necrotizing fasciitis. Nobody understands how come Which we can't most stop people it? catch in a hospital. Yes, they do. Yeah. <laughs> and they, and they think it's antibiotic resistance or something. Well, I actually, we could, we, we have a tremendous powerful tool right at our fingertips carbogen which enhances not just tissue oxygenation but tissue perfusion you know tissue oxygen release and most of these really stubborn infections are caused by what you call uh, facultative anaerobes that is organisms microbes that thrive in the absence of oxygen now, tuberculosis is an exception and a handful of uh, similar type diseases, um, uh, but facultative anaerobes are, you know, clostridial, gas gangrene, um, you know, the MRSA problem and, um, oh, you know, most forms of sepsis and everything are caused by these, these uh, facultative anaerobes. They, they tend to thrive in bone and connective tissue, places where you don't get good, the prostate, you know, which has poor circulation and mm-hmm. it's kind of hypoxic tissues and they can survive in there and the antibiotics can't get at them. Right. So here we have a, a trem- and, and, you know, and the, they, the, they, the conventional treatment is put you in a hyperbaric oxygen tank and try to force the oxygen in. It doesn't work because your hemoglobin is already a hundred percent saturated. You and me just walking around. I can tell because your color's good, you know, so that's the limitation. You can't get more oxygen into the body, into way deep in the body, except by transporting it in the hemoglobin. So the high pressure of oxygen that you're breathing doesn't make any difference. Hmm. Breathing 100% oxygen doesn't help. You've got to have carbon dioxide to release the oxygen from the hemoglobin and, and increase the tissue perfusion that enables the heart to push the or pump the blood into the tissues. So we okay. have this powerful method, see, that is provided a few simple treatments. So we can improve tissue oxygenation, restore organ function, and revolutionize the treatment of disease. That leads me into my last question, because I don't want to run too long. I think if anybody wants more information, they're going to have to read the book. This is not something that we can... Uh, completely cover in a short conversation to have the time in this podcast. But one of the things that you said in in the last article you wrote is that understanding the the stress mechanism, uh, and you you spoke to it a little bit, it would enable predictable treatments uh, that that can save lives. And um, you've gone into it a little bit. And I think that's what people need to understand that, that this will save lives. This is a, you know, a revolution, maybe revolutionary, maybe we're just catching up to it. uh, And it's taken a while and getting, jumping a bunch of hurdles, but it's, it's it's that important, not just to treat. It's very important. Now, let me, let me dramatize this with my own personal experience. Years ago, I've had a knee surgery just like you, right? In fact, I've had like five of major knee surgeries from a skiing injury. 
So way back uh, early on, uh, afterwards, I couldn't pee. And so they put in a urinary catheter. Well, as a result of that, I got a prostate infection. Now, that that damn prostate <laughs> infection. Oh, well, welcome to the club. Well, I suffered with Oops. this. It was caused by an organism called Proteus mirabilis. Mm -hmm. And um, I tried treating it with all different kinds of antibiotics based on the advice of this, that, and the other, uh, you know, urologist. And uh, it, it, we could control it, but it would keep coming back about every two years. And um, I mean, a couple of times I had to be hospitalized. I got septic and I, I was getting, this was going on for like 10, 15 years. And I was really getting frightened. Well, as part of my, this extensive review of, of medical literature that I was under, undergoing, I got the idea that, gee, I, I, I bet you that I could use EDTA, chelation therapy, which is, it's like an anticoagulant. EDTA is a chemical that uh, paralyzes coagulation, okay, temporarily. And it has many therapeutic benefits without going into those details. But I thought, geez, if I, if I use EDTA and then combine that with antibiotics, then maybe I can get better at what you call antibiotic penetration into right. the prostate. So I went into a, a dentist's office where I was working at the time. He gave me permission on it. And I went in a Sunday with my girlfriend, who's a nurse, and started my own IV and treated myself. I'm lucky I didn't kill myself in retrospect. I mean, I was, I was, I was careful. And I just did very simple. I drew blood to, um, into a, a red you know, container to check and see if it was anticoagulated. And then I treated myself with big doses of antibiotics. Well, make a long story short, I cured it. And that's just one example of how I've tested the theory myself on, on myself. And um, I'm going to have to write a, a description of that, you know, okay. for uh, uh, the I'm contributing articles to to the American Institute of, of Stress. And I'm going to describe that. But well, I look forward you know, to reading that one because I remember my yeah. experience was it, I was a young man. I was 30. I didn't even know what the hell a prostate was. So, you know, um, yeah, and it was, it was, it was <laughs> yeah. quite a, quite a journey. One, one doctor gave me five rounds of antibiotics of different antibiotics and, you know, did my own research for three years into it. And basically it's treated wow. it with beta cytosterols and finally, finally <laughs> cured it. So I, well, I thank, thank God it did. Yeah, yeah thank God it, it got you fixed. But there's an even better treatment that I hadn't thought of at that time, which is carbogen. Hmm. That, that would do everything that the EDTA did, but would, in addition to increasing the uh, perfusion, you know, the blood flow in the prostate and delivering the antibiotic, it would also release oxygen and the oxygen would have poisoned the Proteus mirabilis. So the combination of the antibiotic effect and the oxygen would have been triply effective. It would have been a synergistic effect. So guys like you and me, you know, who get prostate infections, we'd be able to cure it like that. Jeez. Okay. Go to a doctor. You wouldn't even have to be hospitalized. Just breathe carbogen, which is very, very safe. And it's like carbogen, I, it, to me, is the most potent uh, and effective and practical treatment ever discovered. And it's hidden. Nobody ever heard of it today. 
doctors today are brainwashed to think you got to treat with pure oxygen and that carbon dioxide is bad, which all relates back to that anesthesia propaganda. In my profession, we always believed, you know, carbon's bad. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's necessary for life. Literally, it's every bit as necessary as oxygen. Okay. Well, so, so tell me what you think, okay, in the, in the near future, as our understanding of stress mechanism improves and also becomes more widely accepted, um, what do you see happening in the future? What do you see? How do you see treatments changing? I would like to see tanks of carbogen located everywhere. There are fire extinguishers and then police cars and ambulances and fire trucks um, and doctor's offices and of course hospitals. Um, That's, that would be a huge, all right. Um, I would like to see stress theory embraced and accepted and applied to treat cancer, to treat critical illnesses. This is actually low hanging fruit. I think Mm. we could cure cancer and critical illnesses very quickly and clean out the intensive care units or make them needed much less. I mean, you could get somebody, put them in the intensive care unit, treat them intensively for 24, 48 hours, and then boom, done. They're out. That would be amazing. Yeah. Now, chronic illnesses are a little more challenging. I think that, um, you know, treatments with chelation therapy, probably in vitamin D uh, would help. But what we really need is further research to to test and confirm what stress theory is saying about the cause of chronic illnesses. And I, I would love to go into it, but we're going to run out of time. Um, but I think that it wouldn't be that difficult to, to confirm the actual cause of what, what's actually going on. And then we need to have the pharmaceutical indus- industry use guided research that is directed by st- in the context of stress theory. The genomics is like a dead end. It's like a, a you know, a diversion off the yellow brick road of, of medical progress into a blind alley. You know, it's not, we've had, you know, 40 years of no progress in, in medical research, no, no theoretical advance at all because genomics is doesn't apply the genomics as as we understand it is based on bacterial cells not the eukaryotic cells that that are that we're composed of again this is all in the book we can't don't have time here to to describe it but we're we're really close what we're talking about is a new era of human existence free from the eternal curse of disease and premature death you know, which would bring health and prosperity and longevity. And my, my question is that I want everybody to think, why not us? Why not now? Why not? Why does this have to wait for our great-great-grandchildren? We have this. It's reachable now. We've got to get the drug companies and all their mischief out of the way and all the confusion that they sow. We've got to somehow get them to set we got to get the attention look this is a problem that is basically political and you know it's abusive politics that has created the present situation 
only politics can solve it. It's going to take political action. It's the only way it can happen. You know what? That's but, a good um, thought to stop on. Why not? Yeah, we could now. we could cure COVID. We can Why cure COVID now. You know, yeah. it's it's you're right. Um, if we don't have to wait for our great grandchildren to be able to do this, why not now? And yes. um, we're going to end it here because I think that's a great statement to end it on. And we're researchers like you and people like you who are bringing a better understanding to the stress mechanism and what it enables us to do and people like you as physicians able to do is extremely important. And we need to start paying attention to it. Not just talking about when we talk about stress, doing some of the five great things that will help you relieve your stress. The science of it can make yeah. our lives one other, better. One, yeah. One other quick thought before we, we head for the hills, um, the stress mechanism for the first time explains how and why emotional stress causes physical damage and harm and why it aggravates disease. It actually is a major element in causing disease. Now, you know, we all know that. We know that, that emotional stress is harmful, right? Everything from financial stress to, you know, fear of being shot or mugged or something like that. But um, it's actually very, very harmful to your health. Um, so knowing that now we can take steps to deal with it much better. And as long so. as people like you are there to, to help us guide, take those steps and uh, really do a deep research into it. I think, um, I think we're, we're getting there. We're, 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 we're certainly know a lot more. We're that close. <laughs> Dr. Coleman, I, I want to thank you very much for, for taking the time to help us understand oh. this. You know, it's um, we don't go into the deep science as often as we can on this show, and uh, you bring a better understanding to it. For that, I thank you, and so do all the listeners. Did you understand? Okay, I mean, did did you have any questions about? There's always questions. There's going to be oh. questions forever, but oh, okay. Um, you know, we're never going to get them all answered all at once, all on a show like this. Oh, that's people true. can <laughs> people can certainly read your articles guys if you're listening go on to stress.org make sure you subscribe it's free it's free let me say that again it's free to subscribe to our magazines uh, contentment and oh. uh, combat stress so and can, also there's my my website will yes. i mean that uh which is www.stressmechanism.com and I'm building a Facebook page and LinkedIn and uh, ResearchGate. I'm, I'm trying to get the word out on this as best I can. Right. But I have a website. The, the Stress Mechanism website has copies of all my published papers that are free. Um, and uh, so if you don't want to buy the book, you can read my published papers. And it's got most of everything in there if you're willing to go through and Right. and read those things. And also, um, I think you mentioned that the book is coming out in electronic form soon. Yeah, the book is going to, we're working on an electronic version. It'll be $30, which is a lot more reasonable than, than the $150 uh, price of the book. Yeah. Um, 
course, I think that uh, the, well, it's just your preference. I mean, the electronic version has everything the book has. So. I, yeah, but I, I've always, you know, been a fan of print. <laughs> That's because of my age. Um, but you're right. right. I think Same a here. lot of people, I think a lot of people will like it. So make sure, you know, you like I said, subscribe to the magazine, make sure you read Dr. Coleman's articles and Lewis's uh uh, uh, website at stressmechanism.com. You can look him up on Amazon. You find he's, he's not hiding. You can find him and it's, and it's really great information and it's very illuminating to find out all the things that stress does to us. Again, thank you, Lewis. Appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thanks. Thanks for your help in disseminating the, this information. And uh, it's very exciting. We can, if it catches on, then we can change the world. And uh, that's what I, I, I would love to see that before I, you know, yeah, sand you runs out of my hourglass. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Maybe they'll keep more sand in our hourglass for a little bit longer. There you go. All right. Well, I want to thank everybody for joining us today. Please don't forget to follow this podcast. Send in those reviews. If you're watching on YouTube, again, hit the subscribe button over there. Uh, hit the like button. Remember also that your support helps keep making these podcasts and all the other things we do at the American Institute of Stress possible. So make sure you visit us at stress.org. And you know that Stress is different for everybody. And just like it is different for everybody, there is no one stress reduction or management strategy that is right for everyone. So make sure that you join us next time where we'll explore more stress management and strategies and insights. And again, if you go to stress.org, you'll be able to gather information, tools, and techniques to help you live a healthier, happier, and hopefully a longer life. And I hope the information that you heard today from Dr. Coleman and myself will help you find contentment. Good day, everyone.